Testing, testing, one, two, that's working. Like I said, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Speak Ola podcast this evening. With? Tony Wilson. And? Jack Wilson. Who's Jack Wilson? Host number two. <laughs> yes, host number two. My nine-year-old son, Jack, who's been do- we've been doing a podcast together, haven't we? Yeah. We haven't put it up online yet, but it's going to be very good. But you are going to help me with the announcements for this show. Who's our show supporter, Jack? Greenskinavocados.com.au Greenskinavocados.com.au That is right, Jack. And what do they do? What do they sell? The best avocado you can ever wish for. The best avocados you can ever wish for. And and we thank them very much for supporting our speeches project, Jack. Um, and we support their avocados project. And what about this episode? What's coming up on the show? On this on this episode today, please welcome one of the guests that we had the person who gave a speech about the stick a couple of weeks ago, Mr. Rob Carlton. <laughs> he is. It's Rob Carlton, Australian actor, filmmaker, entertainer, and Rob is going to give his speech about a stick. Take it away. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. with Tony Wilson. Hello, welcome to the episode. I am Tony Wilson and thank you Jack for the help there with the pre-show announcements. And thank you for tuning in again to the Speak Ola podcast. This is the podcast where we celebrate great speech making, play the speech, talk to the speaker, talk to someone who knows a lot about a speech. And it's going really well. A lot of listeners and a lot of downloads. And it might go even better if you give us a review or a rating. In the iTunes store, that apparently helps. Possibly only helps the egos of the presenters involved. But just in case it boosts us up through the rankings, it certainly doesn't cost anything. So please, if you would, leave a little note on the iTunes store. That would help. This episode is dedicated to salon storytelling. The art of spinning a yarn, as we call it here in Australia. And in particular, Rob Carlton, one of the best at doing that. Rob is going to talk about delivering one of these stories. They've become very popular in this era of the moth. They really pioneered it and brought it to the people. But there are now storytelling salons everywhere. And if you want to know how to pick a topic, how to build tension, thinking about competing threads, how to bring a story to a conclusion, all those things will be addressed by Rob Carlton in my chat with him. But one thing I think is important with these moth-style stories is that you don't know what's going to happen. No spoilers. And so I'm going to play with the usual format 
of the podcast. For every episode so far, I've had the interview and then played the speech at the end. Well, for this one, I'm going to play the speech at the start so that Rob can reveal the story at the pace in which he wanted it to be revealed. And then the interview with Rob Carlton will follow the speech. So it's a little bit of a flip around. The event that Rob Carlton spoke at was actually organised by myself. I'd become a bit of a fan of The Moth and other such projects and decided that the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne would be a great place to host an event that was called Show and Tell for Grown Ups. The idea being that you bring along an item and then talk about why that item is meaningful to you. It was actually a little segment at the end of the Andrew Denton show uh, many years ago, Enough Rope. And so I borrowed that and fleshed it out into a full night of storytelling. And in fact, in episode one of this podcast, I had Damien Callanan on talking about eulogies and he brought along some locate jam to the second incarnation of Show and Tell for Grown Ups. And you can hear that speech at the end of episode one of this podcast. Rob Carlton was the third speaker on that night. And Rob is a prominent actor. He won a silver Logie for his portrayal of Kerry Packer in the popular miniseries Paper Giants. But he's really been on everything, from right back to a country practice to water acts to blue healers. He's been on it. And he's also made a name for himself as a writer-director, Shandon Pictures being one of his best releases, and a very popular speaker and MC at all sorts of events. And if you ever want to book Rob, it's at robcarlton.com. So that's the intro. Here's the event. The Wheeler Centre, February 2016. Show and tell for grown-ups. He's a speaker, he's a raconteur, he's an absolute hero of mine. Please put your hands together for Rob Carlton. Hello. Thank you. Rob, do you want to do you want this or do you want to no, sit no, no, down? No, I'm gonna sit down. Um, so I can put my chantel there straight away. Up to Let's you. <laughs> it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's a stick. If I put it there, it blends into the background, though. It's got a camouflage, show and tell now. Mate, can you see that? Yeah. All right, there you are. All right. It's a stick. It's my stick. So talk us through I, a stick. You, so I was uh, thinking about this. And this uh, stick kind of comes within a, a story within a story, I think. Uh, and certainly by the, um, <clears throat> by the end of this, we'll, uh, we'll know whether there's a story in it at all. Uh, so that stick was uh, in my house growing up. It was always part of our lives. Uh, my mum and dad were amazing cooks. My dad loved cooking curries. And for as long as I can remember, that stick um, was in our kitchen in Bayview, which was my kind of um, you know, at home where you get a real sense of home. Um, and that stick was used to stir our curries. <laughs> and at some point, I think in my teens... Um, I learnt that that stick was brought into my family when, before I was born, about 18 months before I was born, where my mum and dad and my two older sisters were living in New Zealand and my older brother Richard was born. And at eight weeks of age, my brother Richard died of cot death and my mum and my dad and my sisters I uh, walked down to the beach, a lonely, cold, windy day. An Australian family sitting on a beach in New Zealand. 
trying to gather courage together. And they picked up that stick and they brought it home. And I learned about that when I was in my teens. And it was always this wonderful thing. It was something that was just there and we always used it and it was part of our life. And then um, my mum and dad got a bit older and uh, as wise parents do, when they start to get older, they um, divested themselves of uh, all these things that should they go under a bus that it won't, it won't mean anything to anybody else. Hang on, I'm an old roadie. Don't worry about this. Being an actor, you can pretty much do every job. <laughs> um, coffee, anyone? <laughs> that one. That one. So, a long time since you've done those, those ones, though, isn't it? So, so um, yeah, when, they, when, when older people get sensible, they say, well, you know, no one's going to mean anything. So they gave it to me. It was my stick because um, I was the replacement boy. Um, and so I, I now got this stick and I then uh, have it at my house and I've got twin boys and my 11-year-old boys and I explain to them everything that goes on in my life and I tell them that this is, this is my stick and this is how we, ca- we came to get it. And they call it the stick of Richard Life. My little boys call it the stick of Richard Life, so that's the name. So here's where the story gets into a bit of a, a different sort of story and it, and it starts to it go slightly skew-if. Right. Oh, and don't worry about me, I do get emotional, but trust me, I'm feeling fine. Um, so, we then, um, I, in Sydney we do think something called Story Club. We sit down, we write a 1600 word story and we, and we read it out in a big oversized chair. Now the theme of Story Club this month was Sense of Impending Doom. <laughs> write a story about when you had a sense of impending doom. Now, here's the bizarre thing. I don't have a sense of impending doom. I've never had a sense of impending doom. And it, re- it remains one of the great mysteries of my life, how my mum and dad were able to bring me up in a world that was only ever going to shine on me, that was only ever going to give me joy and wonder and happiness if I showed it to the world. I was never mollycoddled. I was never, ever got a sense that this world would take me away. And how my mum and dad did that after going through what they went through remains a mystery. So I wrote this story and I framed my story up with this stick and talked about the irony of growing up without this impending doom given everything I should have had should have been fear and worry. So I write this story and I read it out and it was good man, I nailed it. But then, of course, I think I've got to tell my mum and dad and I got this thing and I, you know, how am I cashing in on the family heartache and grief? And, and then you say, oh, dearie me, what's going on? I wasn't doing that. I know what I'm like. I was, I was honest and clear in my intent. And so I wasn't doing that. But for the first time ever, I felt reticent a little to tell my mum and dad about my story that I'd written for fear of the emotions that it would bring up. And shortly thereafter, I came down to Melbourne and I was having dinner and I, I, I did think to myself, what shall I do in this situation? Uh, and so I do what I always do. I arrived and spilled my guts immediately. Uh, <laughs> that's just how I roll. Um, and so that led to this... Um, now we're going to be here till 8 o'clock. <laughs> um, so I, I told my mum and dad, this is what I've done. Um... And of course, we, my mum and dad are amazing people and so emotionally courageous and transparent. And we, we talked about that, the detail. Um, I, and I, I, I never really got an understanding of what my dad went through. 
My dad's framing of those horrible days back in New Zealand 46 years ago were always, it was so much worse for your mum. You see, Rob, back then, our lives, it was segregated. I would go to work and I, I could go and... But, but your mum was at home with the children and, and she carried Richard and she was looking after Richard and she was with Richard every hour of every day. It was, and, and this was my understanding of that time. And in fact, my story, when I wrote it, it uh, focused on that moment that my sister would tell me. She still remembers the moment mum running down the garden path saying he's gone, he's gone. And it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking image in my mind. Um, but that was my memory of this time and I wrote this story. So I have this interesting evening with my mum and dad and then I go to the theatre just down here and my older sister, by chance it's her birthday and she's at the theatre and she rarely goes to the theatre and I, didn't, I hadn't organised to be there with her. She was there with her husband and we go and see a show together. It was poor. Um, and we meet in the foyer afterwards, we go to the Curve Bar and she, they say, how are you going? I said, I'm really well, but I've had this really interesting, kind of incredible night with mum and dad talking about the detail of that day Richard died. And I said, you know, and I talked about this and I talked about that and, and I said, and this, this moment with mum running down the garden path and, and I was a sad and she said oh but Rob that's not the clearest memory of my day I said what is it and she said dad and I'd never heard anything about my dad's response on that day I'd only ever heard it through the prism of dad saying it's so much worse for your mum and that was it I said, what do you mean? Now, I may lose it during this bit. Again, don't worry, I'm brave. So we're standing in the curve bar having this conversation and my sister says, my most potent memory of that day when they put Richard into the back of the ambulance, Dad, banging on the roof of the ambulance and howling and she told me that and I had this like emotional punch it was like a fist jamming into my chest and I literally went oh and went bent down and started sobbing and sobbing and I couldn't stand up and I bent down to my knees and it was like I was a, like a groaning wreck I've never felt anything like that in my life nothing since nothing before and at that moment I felt guilt and I felt shame I felt that I hadn't honored my father's grief I felt as a son I didn't really know the truth of the most horrific thing in my father's life and I'd written a story and I honoured my mum and her bravery and courage and optimism. But I felt like I'd sold my father out a little bit. It was an astonishing moment. And being what I am, I needed to kind of try and make um, a reparation. So 
I thought about this, and a week or two later, oh, and then mum and dad said, will you show us the story? <laughs> oh, shit, and it's mad. I mean, like, it's an adventure story. It's a road trip story. So, you know, it's no sense of impending doom, man, and me and my buddy go on a road trip. We hitchhike over to win, and, you know, we spend a night with an attempted murderess. There's nudity. Um, there's panel vans. There's, you know, a lot of low-level criminality. Um, and I think, you know, but, you know, you, they can read that, mum and dad, but, you know, there's also the stick of Richard life stuff. Um, so I send it to them and mum and dad read it and they, they ring up and they say, well, we read your story and they say something and then dad gets on the phone and he's very proper. He said, ooh, hello. He said, you know, I've written plays. He said, you know, I've written, I've seen a lot of the things you've done, Rob. And they, he said, but you know, I've never, I've never read your prose and they're quite beautiful, crisp, not too many long words. <laughs> Very clear. I mean, beautifully done. A lovely story. Obviously very sad, and I'm sure the people that heard it were crying. But in terms of the quality of the literature, very well done. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, fuck. I said, thanks, Dad. But I said, Look, I've got to say, thing, and I didn't want to talk about that moment that my sister, that it was not for me to bring up that, that moment. I did say to him, I said, look, yeah, but I've been thinking about this. And I said, you know, Dad, I, I really don't feel that I've ever really, I guess, honoured or accepted or talked to you about what you really went through. It's always been through the prism of a family, through the prism of what mum went through and, and, and my sisters. But I've never really... And he said, oh, no, well, yes, you know, obviously it was very, very difficult, very sad. But, and then, boom, like a switch straight to the dominant story. It was so much worse for your mother for your mother. There was nothing really difficult for me. I had to go to work. This is the way it was. It's your mother. It's your mother. It's your mother. And I didn't test it further because that is my dad's story. Now, two things to come out of this. One, I think it gave me an insight into what it is different members of the family do. And when we come to an experience and we walk away with our own story of it, each member of a family, each member of that experience has their own narrative that they need so that they can keep moving forward in a way that helps everybody get forward. And at that point in time, I truly believe my dad needed to, to sublimate the heartache and the pain of what it is to lose his only son in order for my mum to repair and my sisters to grow and for me should I arrive to be born into a world that still has hope and that every time I go to sleep isn't the most frightening moment in the world for a family, which I think it would have been. So I think that's what my dad had to do and that's what he clung to and that was his story. And then the thing I've been thinking on in this last month, my dad died in Christmas Eve. Um, it wasn't guilt I felt that day or shame or sadness when my sister told me about that image and the ambulance. I have a feeling it was an inherited memory. The feeling was so visceral, it was so strong, it was, I mean, the time was instantaneous when my sister said, this was what your dad did, was I hit the deck and I was howling. 
Now, I don't know how we as human beings learn what we learn, what knowledge is innate, what we're born with, what's nature, what's nurture. But it's my feeling that that particular experience that my dad went through 46 years ago has somehow, through the wonder of procreation, and found its way somewhere into my heart and body. And my dad's experience rests now with me. That's my stick. Such an emotional climax to a brilliant speech. That's my stick by Rob Carlton, delivered at the Wheeler Centre in 2016. And thank you to the Wheeler Centre for allowing me to use that audio. I mentioned it at the outset, but Speakola has been accepting donations this year and there have been a dozen or so generous donors to everyone who's clicked on the donate button, either in the notes of the podcast or on each page of the Speakola website. It helps the project roll along and covers some of the expenses, the transcribing, the hosting, those sorts of things. Well, we are back to front this week. We've already heard the speech. Now for the interview with Rob Carlton, remembering that amazing night four years ago. Speakola. Well, Rob Carlton, thanks for being a guest on Speakola podcast. Tony, thanks so much for having us, mate. Lovely to chat. Now, we know each other pretty well. You're up in Sydney, yep. I'm in Melbourne, and mm-hmm. I do remember the mm-hmm. first time I saw you speaking in full flight, Rob. Mm-hmm. Do you remember it? It was in Adelaide? <laughs> I do. I do. We were debating against each other. We were across the aisle looking into each other's eyes, looking for each other's uh, oratorical deficiencies. That's right. And uh, I believe the topic we were debating, it was to a room of accountants, CPAs, yep. and the topic we were debating mm. was that the accountant will be extinct in 10 years. And uh, I mm. had the plum job of debating the affirmative of that topic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you were invited in to tell the audience why they were useless. <laughs> <laughs> I think I sang a song to the to their to their death um it was a, it was a, it was like a funeral hymn and uh, and then uh, and then you got to come in didn't you yeah 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 so i was obviously after you'd finished speaking and as fantastic as you were and that song i remember would have was a passionate uh, a sort of a, a, a passionate call to arms almost said so they they could take up um arms against themselves well they needed some picking up didn't they tony and that audience because they needed I did. I came in with a beacon of hope, letting them know that nothing would change and that they would rule our coffers for time immemorium. Uh, and the only other thing that I needed to do on that day to make them feel good was to make you feel as terrible as possible. <laughs> well, you were the Martin Luther King of pro accountant speakers. You, no one has ever given a more impassioned defence of the Baz and its and its role in society. But Rob, I did see a great speaker at work, and and so when I was running a night for the Wheeler Centre a few months, or it might have even been a year later. I mm-hmm. wanted to get you down from Sydney for the show and tell for grown-ups. And, uh, and we've just yes. heard that speech. And what an amazing speech it is. Uh, thanks, mate. Thank you. So this was a task. I sort of had the idea, you know, what if people structured a story around an object? You know, I'd been listening to The Moth and, and other story slams like that. And 
I knew you'd done a lot of storytelling in, in those formats before. Um, can you tell us where you've been involved with that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Zoe Norton Lodge and Ben Jenkins, who are these two bright beans that came out of Sydney University uh, a number of years after I left, uh, started a thing called Story Club. And it was uh, essentially a whole bunch of bright young things from the university getting together once a month. And, and the rules were simple. You had to write one true story around a theme, about 1,600 words long, and then you would sit in a big oversized chair and read it to the audience. I loved the format because it took the onus off the full stand-up performative element of it and brought some focus back onto the written word. But there is a performance element to it because you are then reading it out. So I had done a number of these stories with Ben and Zoe. And the thing that I loved about it was because it was a story format, it allowed you to really keep the pressure inside the bottle until you were ready to release it. There's something about sitting in a chair reading from an oversized book and the audience know that there's something coming. And so there's an anticipation. And what that storytelling format allows you to do is hold on to it a lot longer. Often what you'll see with stand-up comics, certainly newer ones, ones that know their craft, they can obviously do what they want. But the greed for the gag, the need for the laugh so often robs us of a richer experience because that gag often will undercut and will get in the way of building up stakes, if you will. And so what I really loved about that story club format was an ability to really ponder the notion of why I was telling that story and then build it up and build it up and build it up so that when you finally did get a laugh or go for a laugh, the release was uh, emotional as as well as humorous. So it's a slightly different format. So I'd done a number of those, and I think that's why you invited me down to Melbourne. But then when I arrived in Melbourne, it was a slightly different story I arrived with. So when I asked you to do it, was this an easy decision for you? When the format was show and tell, bring an object and talk about it, would you have had mm. to think long about that? The answer comes in two parts. So the first part of the question was, Rob, do you have a possession that means the world to you? Uh, and the answer to that was very quickly, yes, which is, as you would have heard the speech, that answer was my stick. Then you asked, did I want to come and talk about it? And that was the bit where I think I said to you at the time, mate, you're just going to have to give me a little bit of time to have a think about whether I want to go there. Uh, and that was because only a month and a half beforehand, my father had passed away. And so the topic of the stick story or the environment that that was exploring was very much about uh, fathers and sons and mums and families. And given that my father had only just passed away and I was coming to Melbourne and I was staying at my mum's house and I knew I'd want to invite my mum along, but didn't know if I was ready to tell that story in front of my mum. There was a whole lot going on for me. And so I just didn't know whether I could tell the story or exactly where the heart of the story was. So that's what I had to think about. And how much of the story did you plan? Was this a winged speech to a large extent? Or did you sit down and block this out up in Sydney before you came down and you were pretty much ready to go? Uh, so none of it was written down. I hadn't written any of the speech out or the story out. So for this particular one, it had been brewing up. So 
the story in and of itself arrived in sort of two packages. One, there's the larger story of the stick being in my life. And then there was the story within a story, which was once I started talking about the stick, then this other story presented itself where my sister gave me an insight into my father's experience that I hadn't ever considered before. And that in turn set off a whole host of questions around the role of my father, my role as a son, my understanding of my father's role as father, and my understanding of my role transitioning from boy to man, and all of those things. And so I guess the way my mind works is that I'd been chewing over these big thoughts for quite a while, for six or seven months. And then with the passing of my father in the two months before I spoke to you uh, on that day at the Wheeler Centre, this story had come up in my mind again and again and again. So while I hadn't written anything down, I guess I'd been chewing over the basic beats of the story because I was going through an extraordinarily transformative time in my life, which for me occurred at that particular point because... Um, well, I guess in the old Roman terms, I'd become the pater familias, the oldest male in the family, which I say slightly tongue-in-cheek because I was still the baby brother and my older sisters are amazing and there's nothing head of the family about me. Um, but these are the things that one comes to contemplate at the passing of a parent. Yeah. And so the stick, obviously, is, once you make the decision that it's that it's going to be the stick story, um, yeah. Were there like were there logistical questions like bringing the stick to Melbourne? Did did you really bring it, or did we see a, like a, a, a prop stick? It's, no, no, yeah, I brought the stick with me to Melbourne. Um, there's a lovely story about that, in actual fact, uh, with regards to the stick and it's that notion of how important it is. But um, I think with the most important things in our lives. We need to do two things. We need to acknowledge them as some of the most important things in our lives. We also need to acknowledge in the same breath that they can't matter a jot because, you know, to lose the stick while it would be sad, life goes on and we all need need to press on. But interestingly, the day after my father died, everyone was at my house uh, in the kitchen and we got that day an ice cream maker because it was Christmas Day and we were making ice cream with the ice cream maker and one of my sons got the stick of Richard Life and was stirring the ice cream in the ice cream maker and stirring and stirring and stirring. And as the ice cream got thicker and thicker and thicker, the stick snapped and it snapped in two the day after my dad died. And my mum walked into the kitchen at that point in time and looked down and saw my boy holding the stick that was now in half. Now, my boys know what the stick is. They were the ones that called it the stick of Richard Life. And my boy looked horrified that he'd broken this thing that he knew was so precious to me. And I looked at him and he was so worried. And my mum walked in and, of course, it meant the most to her. And she looked down and she said, oh, well, darling, it's just a stick. Maybe we can um, stick it back together and uh, keep it in a safe place. There was absolutely no sense of recrimination or what have you done. Remembering she just lost her partner of over 50 years the day before. Uh. And there was my mum, this extraordinary woman, still being able to see that life goes on no matter what you lose. And so, yeah, I brought the stick with me to Melbourne. Then the other logistics, of course, uh, Tony, was do I invite my mum? Because I didn't really know how the story was going to play out. Um, my mum had lost her, her husband at that point by six weeks, six weeks ago. 
And in the end, and, and because I'd organised to go out to dinner with my mum after the thing. So then it felt ridiculous to say, mum, let's go together, but you wait outside while I tell our very precious family story um, and then I'll come and meet you. And so that felt all really weird and wrong as well. So I, eventually I just said, I asked mum if she wanted to come. She said, I think I can be there. And so then I just needed to suck it up and acknowledge that mum was in the front row uh, and there was also a listening public that had come to hear a story. Uh, and so I needed to balance all of these things out. It was quite a tricky task. And it was, you start off, I think, and no one can see the kind of um, the swirl that might be going through your mind. You, you start off like a pro, really, which is some very gentle banter with me and, and we're mm. laughing over the item and the innocuous nature of the item. And, and I, I guess in some ways that was nice that you knew that your entry point was going to be, well, you knew what your entry point was going to be. It was going to be just holding up a stick, right? Yeah, yeah. I knew that. I knew that. Well, going back though, Tony, if we're talking about speaking and, you know, the various dynamics at play, already we were in a better shape than we would have been. And that was due to your insights. Because when I arrived, you thought that I was going to be doing um, what are some of the things that I've done before, which is, you know, a nice story, reasonably heartfelt, but some big laughs in there. When I told you what my story was slightly going to be about, you realised that the big laughs weren't going to be there. And you'd programmed me originally up front. Let's get this night off to a bit of a start. We know Rob can tell some funny stories. We'll lean into it and then we'll welcome our next guest. When I told you the story I'd brought, which was very different to what you thought I was going to arrive with, you immediately looked slightly horrified but then whipped into action and said, I'm going to put you last on the program, not first on the program. So that was a really smart thing. So for listeners out there, make no mistake, the order in which people speak is absolutely critical to a, a, a success or not. And you must have had to make the decision, you know, how long do I drag this out you, you, in terms of telling us what the stick is? Um, because yeah. there's obviously a huge emotional punch the moment you say what the stick represents. And, and um, you give us a little bit of the idea that it's used for curries and it's part of your life and the general innocuous things that a stick can do but it's very quick really it's three paragraphs in that you you hit us with the first punch and, and you hit us with you know i can hear the crack in your voice as you say it. and i think that's mm. sort of the moment where this thing starts to to become something special oh thank you the introduction of the stick and the emotional import of it needs to happen quite quickly uh, but if you have a look um and then as you as you say there was a couple of funnies up front but looking at the story and the way it played out, I introduced the stick how I learnt about the stick, which was it was just a thing that we did in our lives. So for many, many years, it was just a part of the wallpaper of my life, the brick and brack of goings on, you know, the, the stick we stirred our curries with. And so there's that nice soft entry, which is the soft entry I had in my real life. Up until my teenage years, there was this thing. But then very quickly... I wanted to get to, I needed to alert the audience to the extraordinary history imbued with this stick because the rest of the story is predicated on understanding this family history that had happened many, many years ago. So, you know, two years before I was born, 1969. Uh, so it's really important to get that up front so that the audience knows exactly what sort of story is about to occur and the space that we're going to be living in. So you want, you need to get to that stuff quickly. Uh, often people prevaricate for way too long. And I think that's a fear for getting to the heart of the matter. 
But the key is when you're talking with this sort of story, you need to set that stuff up right away so the audience can set back and get their expectations ready for the sort of story that you're about to go on. As long as you've got a few more reveals uh, coming, which I was pretty sure I did. You mentioned later in the story that you're an emotional person and for us not to worry if you cry and you say that with a laugh. Mm. Um, yeah. But I hear you, your voice go as you, as you mention your brother dying. Is that mm. – does a storyteller like you who's also a professional actor – is that the sort of thing where you want that crack to happen beforehand or you had just no say in it with your mum there in the front row and such things? Uh, so that particular moment, I had no say in it. And remembering this was the first time I'd ever told that story. So if you're, telling, if you're giving a keynote speech and you're telling, you know, many people get invited into places and you give a speech and it might be a speech you've told before, then there are elements of you know what's coming and when. Uh, and in that scenario to show that emotion or to tell that part of a story, it, it would be wrong to say that you don't know what's happening, but you can control that emotional level to a degree. And sometimes it is impactful to take yourself back to that emotional place that you know you've been before and ride the line of keeping it under control but letting the audience know that there's something below the surface. In this particular case, uh, on this particular speech, there was those emotions were so close to the surface at the whole time. Remember, my mum was in the front row and we were still grieving uh, the death of my dad. But, but I also knew that, I, I mean, normally when I speak publicly, I can control these things absolutely no problem. If I'm giving speeches at friends' weddings, and at birthday parties, uh, I'm the biggest crier there is. And I know I'm going to cry. At my dad's 80th birthday party, I knew I was going to cry for the entire time I was up there. And I did. And it wasn't that helpful. But I needed to say what I had to say. So this particular instance, I nearly cracked that first time but got through it. And then I think there's a couple of times through the speech where I let the audience know that I'm going to be okay. Because audiences are empathetic. And if they're sitting there worried about my emotional health, then they're not going to be in the best spot to listen to my story. And so I just needed to jump outside the narrative momentarily to let them know that I was fine, even though I looked like I was pretty uncomfortable, because both things can be true. And then I guess you come to one of the, the big themes of the speech. You come to the idea of family history and truth and the way that different truths can coexist. And... Is that mm. does that have to happen? Do you think you can't just tell a story, a sad thing that happened to me is this without meaning? I think meaning will always come through in any given story because a story requires characters in it to be confronted and change. And if it's a tragedy, they change for the worse. And if it's a if it's a aspirational, more hero story, then they'll, they'll change for the better or they'll gain a, a, a richer insight into their experience. So I think every story has its own meaning implicit. Otherwise, it's not a story. It's just a, a selection of observations um, with with no, no real impact. But I did a couple of things with this particular th story, which was to draw out quite specifically some of the things I'd been thinking about. So in answer to your question, Tony, no, a speaker doesn't need to draw out the meaning. You can easily tell a story and then let the audience project their own experience onto that. Because if I tell a story and I say, I, 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 the listener will hear it as, ah, yes, I agree with that, or that's not my experience. 
So their immediate a listener always positions themselves almost as the hero of any given story, or certainly lines that up and compares it to their own experience. So every listener is extracting meaning as it affects them. And then depending on the caliber of that person, they'll either use it to bolster their position or question their position or a heady mixture of both. For this one, I chose to articulate some of the themes because I had been ruminating on them. Uh, I was in that position or time of life where, as I said, I'd lost my dad. I'd become uh, the next person in my timeline closest to that line of death. I was in a ruminating mood. And I think it adds to the story a little bit because it tends to make some sort of sense or it, it tries to put some sort of order over this rather chaotic, emotional, rambunctious ride we've just all been on. I think the device of the other story club, the idea that you've written this story before and now we're hearing an update, I actually think that's, mm. that makes the audience feel special. It feels like there was a truth that I thought I understood and now mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a supplemental and now I'm going to give you the updated truth. Um, and I think, I think that's a wonderful device. Like it's a, we're in and we feel special. Yeah, and there was a discovery for me in that. So the, the heart of that story, that punch, that moment where I'm in the foyer and my sister tells me about that experience where she remembered dad bashing the top of the ambulance and that was the first time I'd had that. Now, that was an extraordinary thing that had occurred to me. After I'd written the initial story, I'd shared that story with my mum and dad. Then that same day I go to the theatre, my sister tells me something that my father, had, that had occurred 45 years earlier and all of a sudden I'm a broken wreck in a public place. That was news to me. And then the new, the real change that occurred was this shame and guilt that I felt that I hadn't truly understood my father's pain. And that was the, the new information that I needed to reconcile and I needed to try and have a conversation with my father about that. And so I guess what I really wanted to do when I expressed that to the audience was let them in on this transition period that I was still going through. I was still in a liminal space. And I think that's a really interesting thing for an audience to understand, which is in various other areas of my life, things can look like they're in control. But in this very, very focused heart space, I was still all up in the air. And when I was on stage that night with you and that audience, I was still wrestling with what my role as a son was and what my role as a father is to be. Uh, And I think when you're watching somebody speak and they're still trying to figure that out in front of you uh, and they're doing a reasonably eloquent job of it, it's quite a fascinating thing because so much of our lives are spent assuring everybody around us that we are in control and that we do know what's going on and we are sure of the meaning. And I think that particular story was a, a good example of someone, in this case me, sitting up on stage going, man, I thought I understood the way of the world and right now I'm just not sure which way is up Um, and I want to be this in front of you. There was an interesting moment in the story where you said that you tried to talk to your dad about this Mm. further information you had that that he had this moment on top of the 
the ambulance and that you'd thought it had been so much about your mum and that that had moved you. Mm. And it was interesting that he, he, he sort of shut you down again there. So it, 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 he sort of didn't do what you were doing for the audience, which is to open up and express it. That's right. That's right. And I was very surprised at my willingness to let him say that again. Because when I was ready for the conversation, I was ready to start talking about what that felt like. And I wanted him to give me the wisdom of how do you survive the almost unsurvivable, which is to lose a child. How do you get through it? And I think I wanted him to deliver me a lesson, a verbal, clear-cut, no-nonsense lesson. Son, this is what I went through. This is how I felt, and this is how I dealt with it. But, of course, he was a human too, and he wasn't ready to do that 45 years later. He still needed to cling to that particular story. And in that moment, I think I got a strongest, the strongest lesson I possibly could have which was my dad was frail too. My dad was vulnerable too and as strong and as bright and as capable as he was, he was still unable to get to the heart or express the nuance of his pain to me 45 years later. And his inability to do that, ironically, was the thing that told me most clearly how difficult it was for him. And his life is an incredible life. I mean, it's not clear from the story, but your dad rose to the you know the highest political offices. He was the shadow treasurer. He was the minister for health um, in the Fraser government. Can you tell us a little bit about him? If you had to give him the two-minute sketch, what sort of a man are, are we talking about? Oh, well, to do it two minutes is... Uh, is it's a very difficult thing. My father was an extraordinary person. You're right. You say he rose to the heights of the um, of that sort of political landscape. Uh, it went further than that. When he left politics, uh, he was lauded by both sides of the house. Neil Blewett, who was the shadow minister for health when Dad was health, Dad, and then Blewett became minister for health. He stood up when Dad left and said, "I followed Jim Carlton's model in how a minister should interact with the shadow minister to get the very best outcomes for the nation." as a whole. At my dad's memorial service, Paul Keating, uh, who dad was opposite in politics, uh, dad was shadow treasurer to Paul's treasurer. Paul flew down to Melbourne for the service and came up to me and he said, we always wished he was one of ours. After dad left politics, he then went on to join the Red Cross. He was awarded the Honorary Dunant Medal, which is the highest honour the International Red Cross give to an international citizen for humanitarian services. And he truly was an extraordinary thinker. But to give you the best way I can an understanding of the sort of man my father was, before he died, we had a conversation and it was about uh, the nature of politics. We, I, I came to some learnings later in life about you know this extraordinarily difficult environment, which is the political world. And we were talking about an interview he gave many years before and we're talking about elements of it. He said, but Rob, do you remember the most important bit of that? And I said, oh, which bit are you talking about? And he told me this, Tony, and it'll give you a sense of the measure of the man. He said, Rob, we as a species don't yet know what problems we are going to have to solve. 
We've already got some big ones on the table, climate change being the biggest. He said, so we don't know the problems we're going to have to solve, but I truly believe if we as a species are to solve them, then as many people in as many places need to be using their imaginations as possible. He said, so Rob, whenever I look at a law that changes the environment in which people live, and whether it's at a company or a country, the very last question I ask myself is, does this allow more people to be imaginative or less people to be imaginative? Now, if the answer is the former and it allows more people, then we press on regardless of the cost because there is a cost with absolutely every decision. Of course, there's going to be fallout. But if it allows more people to be more imaginative, then I believe that is a good change. If it allows less people to be imaginative, then no matter what the upside, we shut that down. And I remember being profoundly moved by this. It's a beautiful northern star. And I thought it was a wonderful thing for our leaders of the country to have that as the final question they ask themselves. When you're looking to legislate laws across a land, the amount of inputs, the amount of warring parties, the amount of vested interests would make it almost impossible to make a clear decision. And so by asking yourself one final question at the end of it, does this allow more or less people to be imaginative? There's kind of a clear cut through. And it is a beautiful question to ask because at the heart of it, it's a truly inclusive question. It acknowledges that the great answers, the great minds, the great people can come from anywhere in the world as many people in as many places. And of course, the other implicit premise upon which that is based is the human spirit is good. It doesn't come from a position of guilt or shame or we are a fallen species, you know, needing to be saved by someone. At the heart of it is the human being, if left to their imagination, all in all is a good creature. And to live in a house with a man like that was an extraordinary gift that I'll be forever uh, grateful for. Oh, it's incredible. And it makes me feel a little uh, sad that he didn't win the leadership when he ran for it in 1985 against John Howard because to, to me it feels as though the country might have ended up being a bit of a different place. Well, an interesting story. My understanding of that particular leadership challenge was that at no point was he did he ever have the numbers and knew he didn't have the numbers, but there was nobody else there that was going to run against John Howard. Now, when he ran against John Howard, I think John then put him in his shadow treasury, which would suggest that they were on the same side of a conversation at that point. But uh, anyway, um, he said that if he didn't put his hand up, then nobody would have known how strong the support was for John Howard. I think he got a few more votes than he expected that day anyway. Hey, just one last thought on, on that um, thing with my dad. And this is actually the most extraordinary part of it. So he talks about creating a world where more people are able to live using their imaginations as possible. The most incredible thing about my dad was that, that he, he, he lived that at a macro level. So wherever, wherever he went, they were the sort of thoughts that he put in place to try and, you know, create an environment for all Australians and later with the Red Cross for everyone around the world. The extraordinary bit is this. When my dad got home from wherever he was, whether it was from Parliament House or visiting heads of state around the world, 
when he came back into our house, there wasn't a ripple through the place. There was no sense that the great man was home from Canberra. There was no sense that I needed to change my behaviour to please him. He was so respectful of my mum and he was so respectful of me and my sisters that he was only ever curious and interested. He knew, I'm sure, looking at the things that I was doing, that there were better ways of doing things. But he never imposed his will or his view. Tony, I don't know how he did that. He'd been programmed for years and years and years to be the man at the centre of the conversation. Wherever he went, people would ask the great man, Jim Carlton, what he thought, the best way of doing things. And yet he left that at the door. And when he arrived in, he was my loving dad that allowed me to be who I wanted to be. It's one thing to have an intellectual understanding that that's the best way to run a a country. But as a father, to also implement that at the micro level, at home, is an extraordinary thing. For the parents that are listening, we all know how difficult it is to shut our mouths and let our children fail in their own way and try things in their own way. So since my father's passing, I've thought a lot on these things. And my goal as a dad over the last five years has been to reduce my footprint in the, in, in the house, allow my children a bigger space to breathe in. It's a tough one. Uh, and it's, it, it also shows what a unit they were, you, your mum and your dad as well. I mean, you, mm. you speak about her in the speech and we get a sense I mean, that's equally remarkable that someone coming from that position of loss and grief doesn't helicopter. I mean, it just there must be an overwhelming desire to helicopter and to protect. It's one of the great uh, mysteries of my life that my mum was able to show me a world that was bright and happy and joyful when the world had already taken away my older brother. Uh, I don't know how she did it, and I will be profoundly in her debt uh, till the day I die for the joy that she brought me when her heart must have just been uh, a husk. Did you know about the, the loss of Richard through, throughout? Did you find out in your teens? What, what, what was the way that, yeah. No, I knew about Richard. I knew about my brother from as long as I can remember. It was never a hidden thing. Um There are a couple of moments that stick out in my memory, I guess, when I was a little bit older. So I remember when I was about 13 years old, coming home one day, walking into my room, and my mum had stopped halfway up the stairs of the old Bayview house, and she was just stopped, and she was looking out this sort of window, and I caught her in a moment. You know when you see someone you love just stopped in the middle of space and time and you wonder what they're thinking about? And you choose to ask, Mum, what's up? She looked down and she said, Richard would have been 15 today. It was just an acknowledgement that he was there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that those anniversaries are just, they tick by for people and... They don't always get um, mentioned out loud sometimes after a while. Um, and yeah. you know, I, I, on, a, on a different level and with a different loved person, I, I can empathise with that. Mm. Mm. Rob, when you've got a speech and you've got a moment that you know you've got to say, like the 
the whacking the roof of the mm. ambulance. Um, is that had you had you had a go at doing that beforehand, or uh, 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 no. did you just let it happen? I just let it happen, um, and that's that's the bit I guess that people want to control and want to make sure that you get right but you just can't sometimes. I often talk about the extraordinary notion of being on stage, of being an actor in a stage play, for example. You have to hold in your body two entirely conflicting moments all at once, which is this has to be the most important thing to you in your life at that time getting on stage in front of a massive audience and getting the lines right. It has to be the most important thing in the world to you. It's that passion as an artist that you bring to your work. But at the same time, it can't matter a jot because the character might be feeling light and lovely and happy. And if you as a person walk on with that thing of this is the most important thing in the world and if I stuff it up, everything is gone, then that's the wrong vibe to bring to that particular moment. And so then you've got to go, oh, well, if it falls apart, it falls apart. And that's, to me, the essence of art is housing two opposing thoughts in the one body. That's what art and artists do. Uh, And so for this particular moment in the speech, of course you want to get it right, you don't want to stuff it up, you don't want to fall apart, but you might. So what's the choice? Do you not do it or do you do it? Well, a lot of people don't do it, Um, but I chose to do it because I wanted to tell a story. I knew I wouldn't die if I got it wrong. I knew I'd be embarrassed or a bit, but I guess I also wanted to honour my father and the things that I'd learned about my father and I wanted to express the discomfort that I'd been through and the, in a way of sharing my story so that other people that have gone through similar things or are feeling confused or are feeling upset know that they aren't the, alone in doing it. So for that particular moment, it was really one of those things where I then get back to basic principles of speech making, which is have I thought a lot about my speech or my story? And the answer was yes. There was no one else that could have told that story. I'd thought a lot about it. I was very clear on why I wanted to talk about it. So I guess that goes to, are my intentions good and my homework sound? And the answers were yes and yes. My intention was good and I'd worked hard on thinking about doing that speech. And that's all you can control. So the rest of it is, well, let the dice fly and see what happens. Um, and I find that is a pretty fun way of getting through a speech because if your intention is good, you're honouring your audience, you've done your homework, then people like a valiant effort, Tony. So if it all does come apart, they go, oh, well, at least <laughs> at least the fella tried. So uh, that might be the thing that just allows you that little get-out clause if it all does stuff up. And then you brought it home, Rob, and you actually really surprised me at the end because the the speech for for mine took a turn, and it took it took a turn into the spiritual and and the unknowable. Um, yeah, 
Um, so you're talking about the end of the speech where I talk about my thought that this is an, an inherited memory. Yeah, and I guess it does take a, a leap into the spiritual or in this particular case, you know, it's almost the evolutionary biology of the bit. And I guess there was an element of open-eyed wonder. And the reason I spoke about that was because I'm not a religious person and I'm quite happy as a human being to acknowledge that we still don't know the answer as to how and why or what, the big questions, the imponderables. And if we are just a, you know, one step on the evolutionary ladder towards something and from something, then inevitably that requires us to acknowledge that we don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going. And that's part of the human experience. And so all of the other parts of the story were easily mappable and, and, you know, my particular experience around family loss and family dynamics and family narratives. And that final bit, I guess, was me just dipping the lid into a possible explanation of the almost inexplicable, which is to embrace, I guess, the wonder of the void we come from and the void to where we're going. You know, so much of my life is about results and control and making sure things happen and, you know, not feeling like I'm in free fall because that helps my, you know, emotional health or mental health. But then I think part of the beauty of being alive is to wonder, that sort of thing that we did as teenagers where we're camping for the first few times and we're lying down under the stars with our friends looking up at the sky, asking those big questions, where do we come from uh, and what are we? And there was an element of that, I guess, at the end of the speech because at that time of my life, as I still am, I'm fascinated by these things uh, and wanted to wonder aloud and share that wonder uh, with the audience. You certainly feel that, I mean, you can hear it in in your way you speak now, but um, that sense at the time that you were dealing with these issues. And I've, I've heard you talk about the death of your dad, the night he died. And for mine, that would be another 10-minute wonder speech because you had me. It was an incredible night. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the, that Christmas? Yeah, just brief. I mean, it was an amazing thing. Uh, so it was the, the night before... Christmas Eve, everybody had come to my house up here on the Central Coast, my sisters uh, and their children, uh, my mum and dad had all driven up from Melbourne, they'd arrived at my house and it was an extraordinary business because everyone had arrived, in fact, um, dad's eldest grandson, Nettie, my godson, beautiful boy, he'd been travelling all around Australia so he arrived that night coming from the Northern Territory to be with us for Christmas and he'd actually bought a mate of his as well who was about to arrive for the craziest Christmas that he'd ever seen in his life. We had a lovely big barbecue that night. I cooked my father his final meal uh, without the horror of knowing that that's what it was. And we laughed. And right in the centre of it all was my beautiful, beautiful dad. And everybody was laughing uh, and having a, a great time. They Everybody left that night. Mum and dad and my sister were staying in a house just down the road. The next morning, my dad wakes up. He says to my mum what a lovely night he had, what a lucky man he is, and then he had a massive stroke 
and all but died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital half an hour later. So in terms of exits, it was extraordinary. One could say that he ruined Christmas. <laughs> um, the other take on that, which is the one I'd prefer to take, is that we had a built-in wake. All of us were together. We'd already had a whole week ahead of us of celebrating Christmas. In this particular instance, it allowed us all to be together to be very close to one another, which was crucial um, because it allowed us all to witness what his passing meant and what it might mean for the family dynamic. When someone like my dad passes away, roles in the family change and people's needs change. And with all of us being closer together during that immediate time, we were able to see what each other needed uh, and provide support uh, to each other. And you finished off the speech with, that's my stick. And I think they might have been the same words you began with, a, a sort of a circular feel to that structure. Do you remember if you planned it or was it just uh, you, you were flying at that point? No, I didn't plan that, mate. To be honest, I didn't plan a lot of that speech. I knew that we had 15 minutes. I'm pretty pleased. It played out at about 14 minutes, 10 seconds, uh, I noticed when I looked back at it. Um, but when you speak a lot, you get a good sense of the amount of time. And I knew that's how much time I had. I figured it would fall into that time. I knew the various story within a story and the chunks that I wanted to hit. And I knew that the story was, you know, I'd been invited there for show and tell. So that was your structure. What have you got? I've got a stick. That's my story. That's my stick. And so it just happened. Do, do you remember your mum's response, either watching her during the speech or immediately afterwards? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, my mum was in tears for a lot of it, but the sort of tears I know from my mum, which is, I guess what I said to the audience, you know, I might look like I'm crying, but trust me, I'm going to be okay. My mother is the most emotionally courageous person I know, the most emotionally transparent woman I know, and I have been brought up knowing uh, that tears aren't bad, that emotions on show aren't bad. They are there to guide us and to help us and show us a pathway of the things that we might need to lean into so that we can wake up with a clearer heart tomorrow and walk with a joy in our step, knowing that our joyous steps can still encapsulate some of the great heartaches of our life. And so that was on show for me while I was making that speech, just two metres in front of me in the front row, which was my mum, who is desperately sad, grieving the loss of her husband, reliving the loss of her firstborn son, and yet there was an extraordinary celebration within the body of my mum as she got to acknowledge these great loves of her life, her husband and her firstborn, as being told uh, by another son of hers. Uh, and so while I knew it was difficult for her, I also knew that it was a great celebration for her. Uh, and Tony, you and I and your dad and uh, my mum went out for dinner that night. And I think you'll all agree we had a pretty fantastic night uh, together and it wasn't spending time with a broken woman no. it was spending time with a woman who has the emotional wherewithal to smile and cry with the same gusto 
And and is she still with us, Rob? Is she well? Mate, she is outstanding. <laughs> so uh, she grieved for about a year after my father passed away. She then went away overseas and lived uh, in England for about four months. I think she slept for about uh, three months and then went around the world catching up with some friends and then she came back with all the vim, vigour and gusto that you expect from her. And she's been a constant inspiration since. She did lockdown last year in Melbourne without blinking. Nothing phases her. Her ability to choose life and get on with things is and be grateful. Man, her capacity to express gratitude is unrivaled. So, yeah, mate, she's an absolute beauty. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and what about the story's other great character, Rob? The stick itself. Where is it now, and how did it? How did it uh, respond to its little ice cream trauma? Well, it's just interesting. As you asked me the question, I leaned over and picked it up. I'm sitting here with it in my hands because it sits. It responded to the ice cream trauma quite well. I can see the crack where it uh, split. I took it up to an artist friend of mine and we put it back together with some toothpicks and some glue. And now it sits up in my on my desk. So I look at it every day uh, and I'm feeling it right now and it really is the most beautiful piece of driftwood. It's got such character. It's not straight, but it's smooth to the touch. Uh, and it embodies this extraordinary many, many stories. And all the curries that it stirred as well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, the story itself led to, I got, had so many people contact me after it mm. who were moved by it and, 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 and people who are involved in SIDS and supporting families that have suffered that trauma. Um, did you hear mm. stuff as a result of the, the speech? Yeah, very much so. I got a number of people reached out to me. One of the most beautiful stories I heard in actual fact was from a woman who was about to turn 50, and she said her older brother who died of cot death all those years ago was going to turn 50. She had uh, three other siblings, so there were five children to begin with. One of them died of cot death and the four sisters were all there and they'd never, ever spoken about their brother who died. And their parents had passed on since then and it was one of those subjects that were taboo. After listening to my story, she shared it with her siblings. They then all agreed to meet one night at a pub on their lost brother's 50th birthday. And for the first time ever, they all talked about it. And it was an extraordinary night, she told me, because the elder sister was able to share that she'd felt guilt all this time. She felt that it was her fault that the brother had died. Each of them had their own story locked away inside their own heart that they'd never shared with their sibling because in their particular family, it was too traumatic to talk about. And I understand that. But through the sharing of my story, it allowed them to share their stories. Uh, and um, I'll be profoundly grateful for that woman for getting in, in touch with me because it does serve to highlight something that we believe in this family, which is to share one's stories, is to have richer conversations with those around you and stronger relationships with everyone in your life. Well, Rob, I love listening to you speak. Um, I've loved having this chat now and the speech is one that's truly dear to my heart. So thank you so much for reliving it all again on Speak Ola podcast. Oh, thanks, Tony. And mate, if I may, good on you for putting all of this stuff together. The Speak Ola website is amazing and the forum you provide for people to 
uh, share their stories, I think in, enriches our community immeasurably, mate. So thanks so much. Cheers, Rob. Well, that's it for the episode. Thank you so much, Rob Carlton. Wonderful chat. Brilliant speech, and it was fantastic to revisit it these years later. Check out Rob's stuff at robcarlton.com, and in particular, book him as an MC. He's a gun. And another sublimely gifted storyteller living in the Carlton house isn't a Carlton at all. She's a Ferreira. Adrian Ferreira is Rob's partner, and she is teaching storytelling. She's a brilliant writer herself, and she is helping people put down their real-life stories in six-week workshops. And if you go to bravewords.com.au, you can sign up to the workshops. And one of the things Adrian's trying to foster is connections between people in the course, lasting relationships, writing groups, that sort of thing. So go to bravewords.com.au and sign up for a course. Thank you to the Wheeler Centre for the audio of the show and tell for grown-ups night. Still think it's a great idea, by the way. Network television, if you want to commission me to produce that series for you. If you want to see any of my stuff, go to tonywilson.com.au. Thank you to Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados. That's greenskinavocados.com.au. Tell a friend about Speakola. Visit our site at speakola.com. Next episode of the podcast is going to be Neil Kinnock. Yes, the former leader of the British Labour Party. Great chat. I've already had it. Can't wait for it. Until next time, speak well. Speak well.